0: My name is David Gellis, and this is One Mind Meditation Podcast, coming to you from New York.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 57 of the One Mind Meditation Podcast. My name is Morgan Dix, and this is a show about meditation, mindfulness, and health. So today, I'm super excited to share with you my interview with New York Times reporter David Gellis. He's the author of the wonderful and illuminating book, Mindful Work, which just came out recently in paperback. And before we jump into the interview, I want to remind listeners of the podcast that we are part of the Podcastica podcast network. You can learn more about Podcastica over at podcastica.com. I encourage you to head on over and check out their great shows. We're honored and privileged to be part of this network. So, back to the show. So, David Gellis has written a fabulous book called Mindful Work, and I really encourage you to pick it up. It's an easy read, and it's enjoyable, and it's got great pacing. And David really does something pretty amazing with this book. He, he chronicles how meditation is changing the business world from the inside out. And in the book, he really, he, he takes us on a tour. He takes the reader on a tour. In fact, he takes us on multiple tours, first through his own multi-decade journey with meditation, and then through the broader history of meditation in the West and how meditation has come to the West. And then more recently, he helps us understand the factors that have contributed to the explosion of meditation into the mainstream over the last few years, and also why it's become such a topic of in-depth study and research now in the scientific establishment. But all of that all of that really just serves as a backdrop for the main event, which is this very interesting chronicle of how businesses are embracing meditation. And he really takes us on a tour of several r- amazing organizations that have integrated meditation into their culture, into their work practices. And you really get a sense of this kind of ground shift in business culture. And uh, that's what we talk about today. So check out the interview. And if you like it, I encourage you to read some of David's New York Times articles, which I've linked up in the show notes over at aboutmeditation.com. And and then if you like those, buy the book. Again, it, it is really a great read. And it's going to give you a lot of history, a lot of context for meditation. It's it's uh, It's a really great, well-rounded read, and uh, you won't regret it. So let's jump in to this wonderful interview with David Gellis. David, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on here finally. Welcome.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: So I love to start the show off just learning a little bit about your story. Can you share your story with us and and where does your interest in meditation and mindfulness come from? Can you give us a little bit of your your personal history around this and then how that eventually led to you writing this fascinating and insightful book about how meditation is changing business from the inside out?
0: Sure. It starts all the way back when I was a teenager. Uh, like so many kids, uh, I think I was trying to find answers to life's big questions mm. and coming up short a lot of the time. You know, I, I tried various substances, they didn't have the answers. Yeah. I read Be Here Now. Uh, it was cool, but it didn't have the answers for me. Yeah. And then uh, on New Year's Eve, 1998 eight going into 99, I picked up a, a book on Buddhism off my mother's bookshelf. And I knew I was going to be studying Buddhism in the next semester of college, mm-hmm. uh, where I was attending at Boston University. Mm-hmm. But I had never really thought about it, never really looked into it. And I just started reading. And it was like five, six o'clock in the evening, uh, New Year's Eve, I didn't have any real plans. Um, but I was compelled. And it, it wasn't as if all the answers were right there on the page, mm-hmm. but it suggested that there was a way to, in this life, kind of have some practical guidelines to live by that would help myself suffer less, that could help other people suffer less. And that was all pretty compelling to me. Yeah. So I kept reading that night, and I actually didn't wind up going out that night. And my mom was like, are you okay? Nice. And my friends were like, trying to get me to go to a party and a beach bonfire and a bar. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to stay here and read this book. It's going to be a different evening, but that's what I did. Mm. So the next morning I wake up, I go for a walk on the beach, and then I check in with my friends, and one of them still had his head in the toilet. The other (laughs) had gotten punched in the face in a fight on the BART. And the other had watched his sister relapse and do cocaine again. And at this totally oversimplified level, what I had read about the night before, that craving and desire can lead to suffering, (laughs) and that there was a way to potentially break that cycle, at the most oversimplified level, It made sense to me. Hmm. And so the next day, I did what you do back then before the web was really ubiquitous. I opened up the yellow pages and looked up meditation center and I started meditating. Hmm. So that was um, 16 years ago now. So I continue practicing mostly Zen meditation when I'm kind of 18, 19, 20. And then when I'm 21, I travel to India as a study abroad program. And I spend three months living in the Burmese Vihar in Bodh Gaya, India. Mm-hmm. This is uh, one of the guest houses that so many of the Western meditation seekers and teachers have gone through over the years. And I was fortunate to, to go there with a study abroad program, study with a, a Zen master, a Tibetan Rinpoche, and also this guy named Munind- Munindraji excuse me, Munindraji was the main teacher of Joseph Goldstein, mm. who founded Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, influential teacher who taught Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg as well. Uh, and I was fortunate to get to know him towards the end of his life. Mm. Uh, Spent some time with him in Bodh then took another semester off, didn't go back to school, but continued traveling. Went up to Nepal, did meditation retreats there, went down to southern India, studied with Choka, uh, with Munindraji in southern India and Gawinka, who I was able to study with well he was still alive mm. and then I came back so I'm back um, I'm like a 21 year old don't know exactly what I'm going to do then on September 11th 2001 I happened to be uh, at a meditation retreat in western Massachusetts with Chokanima Rimpache a Tibetan who I had met in India, and people like and including uh, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, Richard Gere was there. It was kind of a trip, and me, right? There was like 12 people in this little retreat cabin in Western Massachusetts when everything went down, and that was just profound. And so if the virtues of the practice of meditation weren't already really, uh, uh, you know, drilled into me in and established part of my worldview after a few years of practice. That experience, being with a community of meditators on that day, uh, really cemented my meditation practice as something that was going to shape the way I saw the world.
1: That's amazing. I was coincidentally living in an ashram in Western Massachusetts at the very moment as well. But that's wow. It's another story for another day. But that's amazing story
0: crossing paths right yeah. so that's so that kind of that's like the bulk of my formal teaching mm.
1: uh,
0: exposure to, to you know teachers who some people would recognize their names yeah and then I kind of went on with my life I, I got a few odd jobs I eventually became a reporter I became a business reporter in between my jobs on holidays I would still go on meditation retreats uh, I would spend time at Spirit Rock I would spend time at Insight Meditation Society. I would find communities, sanghas, wherever I tried to live. Mm. Um, But I bounced around a lot. So I didn't have one strong teacher. I didn't have one strong center that I was really affiliated with. And then about five years ago, I started seeing these kind of news clippings that some businesses were practicing meditation in the office. And, you know, it was like one of those lightning bolt moments where I said, oh, my gosh, this is the two parts of my life coming together. You know, I'm a business reporter and meditation's been a big part of my personal life for a long time, uh, mm. and so I started. I wrote one story, and from that, there was interest in a book, and the rest is history. Here we are.
1: That that is awesome. That's a really fantastic story. I so if we had a long time, I have a big list of questions for you to cram <laughs> into a small period here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you with a Go lot. For it. Okay, great. So who did you write this book for? Is it for is it, would you say it's for business leaders and people in the business world, or did you write it for a general audience? Is it, it? It's an incredible. It's a great book, and it's filled with inspiring stories, historical context, which is really fantastic. And and I'm I'm curious, who was your target audience and why?
0: That's one of the hardest questions I had to answer when I was writing the book. My mm. editor kept asking me. My agent kept asking me. I kept asking myself. Yeah. And the answer I came up with. Um. I hope it's not a cop out, but. It- it's, it's the honest answer is it's a book I hope for anyone who works Mm -hmm. and, and and we all work. Um, so my hope was that there was going to be enough in that book that whether you are a CEO or a middle manager or a freelancer or someone who is on the factory floor that somewhere in there, there would be voices that could speak to your experience. Um, now I obviously I'm not a CEO, I'm not a factory worker, but in the reporting of the book, I tried to solicit enough different views that no matter where you're coming from, even if your work is being at home with your family, that there was going to be something in that book that it could explain how mindfulness and meditation could affect the way you work, hopefully in a positive way.
1: And and in terms of the reception of the the book, do you feel vindicated in that kind of in in that angle? Because I yeah. I that certainly resonates for me the explanation you just gave. It, it it feels to me like you pull that off.
0: Yeah, I mean that's ultimately not for me to decide, but um, I've definitely heard from people in all walks of life. You know, from accountants in Australia and from entrepreneurs in the Bay Area. The, the book was able to reach people across the professional spectrum. And so I guess by that measure, um, uh, I, I, seem to have, you know, achieved at least part, part of my goal.
1: Yeah. Well, that, that's great. I mean, that's one reason I definitely wanted to profile you on the podcast because we have such a broad cross section of people that listen to the show. I really think it is relevant and everyone. I encourage you to get the book. It's a great read. David, so in your book you refer to three main reasons that you've observed that have led to meditation and mindfulness really exploding into the mainstream in the in the last 2 to 3 years obviously the antecedents to that they go way back and I want to ask you about that too but can you illuminate these kind of these these reasons these primary reasons you see like why this moment relative to you know why did it happen now? And and then maybe speak to, speak to those for us.
0: Sure, this is a, this is a bit of a pop quiz. I haven't read that passage in a while, so let, let me see if I can get it right. And you can tell me if I'm if I flunked my own pop okay. quiz. Okay, but but I think there are three main reasons. I mean, number one is we need this stuff right yeah. now. We are living our lives at the speed of the web. And it is uh, more necessary than ever that we find ways, whether it be meditation, whether it be exercise, whether it be time in nature, whatever it may be, to, to, to slow down the velocity of our lives. Mm. And, and mindfulness and meditation is an effective way to do that. It's mm. an effective way to get off the hamster wheel of our mind, to slow down, to notice more acutely and to have a better awareness more comprehensive understanding of what's making us tick on a day-to-day moment um, and just to slow down and be a bit more mindful so yeah. I think that's explaining some of the increased popularity yeah another thing is there is just more data more research we we know that it works there is enough data now after decades of study of mindfulness based stress reduction and other you know controlled tested academically, scientifically verified research that just shows, listen, when people start practicing mindfulness and meditation diligently, their stress levels go down, their heart rate variability smooths out, their cortisol levels come down. We know it makes us less stressed. We know it makes us a little happier and healthier. So Mm. the argument as to why not to do it, I think it's harder to make. Yeah. And the third reason is, is maybe harder to pin, you know, kind of specify, but th- there has been this kind of gradual liberalization um, in society and in the business world. You know, people are now comfortable talking about things like mindfulness and meditation. And some of that's because yoga's been around for so long, some of that's because um, you know, the I think the web has made us all realize like everyone's weird in one way or another. Yeah. We can be weird in this way. Uh <laughs> without having so much stigma around it. But yeah. for whatever reason, you know, mindfulness and meditation might have been seen as completely out of bounds just a few years ago. And that's just not the case today.
1: Totally. All right, that's great. So reading Did a, I
0: pass did I did, were are those you, the three ones? A
1: plus man. Oh, nice. So uh reading your book, I was surprised to learn about one company in particular, which is universally characterized as inhuman and soulless, Monsanto. And you you tell this story, which is fascinating, about how Monsanto was actually one of the real forerunners of this trend, one of the first companies to pioneer mindfulness in the workplace. Did that surprise you? And can you give us like the three-minute version of that story?
0: Yeah, it was a huge shock when I was speaking with Mirabai Bush, who's who's well regarded as one of the most influential mindfulness teachers the last few decades,
1: Mm. someone who's done a lot of
0: work bringing it to companies and organizations and educational institutions, prisons. This woman's really been uh, doing amazing work for Mm -hmm. a long time. And I was interviewing her. I said, So where where was the first time you taught a company? And she said, Monsanto. Oh, and wow. my, my jaw hit the floor. Yeah. Because as you said, like I know Monsanto was the purveyor of GMO seeds that like people protest against. Yeah. But the story there really shows both like the upside and the downside of all this. So in the mid-90s, Monsanto A hadn't gone uh all the way down the road that so many of us associate it with now, but it also had a different CEO and yeah. the CEO was more progressive. He was able to, he was willing to try new things and he asked Mirabai to Come start teaching mindfulness to some of his senior executives. And guess what? People were into it even back then, even at Monsanto, uh, they showed up, they tried to practice. They, some of them had really quite powerful experiences mm. and, um, It it, it kept going for years. And then here, of course, is the the flip side. The CEO got ousted. A new guy came into his place, and they shut the whole thing down. And now Monsanto is the company we we know it for today. Yeah, But I think the story tells you that, listen, this stuff can flourish in unlikely places. And and indeed, um, it can affect even those kind of executives who you would think might never be interested in it.
1: Yeah. So that's like a perfect seg- segue to maybe just flip the coin here and you, soon after the book was published last year, you're part of the chapter, I guess, that where you profiled the CEO of Aetna and that that offers such a counterpoint to the Monsanto story and the effect that mindfulness and meditation had on the CEO of Aetna, but more importantly, the effect that the CEO of Aetna had on that whole culture and business culture. Can you tell us the short version of that story? Because it offers like the opposite, uh, storyline.
0: Yeah. So Mark Bertolini, he was, uh, at the time, this is kind of coming on 10 years ago. He was an up and coming, Executive at Aetna. He wasn't CEO yet, but he had a, a really serious skiing accident. Mm. Um, nerves separated from his left arm to his spinal cord. He was beat up. They administered last rites at the hospital, literally weren't sure that he was going to pull through, but he did. Um, and, and he had surgeries. And he, as he tried to recover, he was pretty doped up. He was on Oxycontin, he was on Vicodin. Um, Every conceivable drug that they could give him to mitigate the pain, he he tried. But after a year, um, he wasn't back at work in the way he wanted to be. He didn't have his energy back. And so he started to try alternative therapies. He started with cranial sacral therapy. He moved on to yoga, and eventually he found meditation. Mm. And through a mix of these alternative treatments, and mindfulness in particular, he started to be able to manage his pain more effectively without the drugs, the, the pain was still there, but he didn't suffer as much. He was able to experience the pain without letting it completely dominate his mm. work, without letting it completely take over his life. Nice. So we got his step back. He became CEO. And then, as CEO of Aetna, he had an interesting opportunity. He said, Listen, I, I run a healthcare company or a big insurance company, healthcare insurance. I know mindfulness and meditation is, was good for my own personal health. Let's see if it works on our employees. So we went to his chief medical officer, a guy named Lonnie Reisman, and he said, "Lonnie, I want to, you know, offer meditation and mindfulness to the employees." And Lonnie said, "Are you crazy? Yeah. No way, sir. It's not going to happen." Yeah. But Mark appealed to the clinician in Lonnie. He said, "Let's test it. Let's measure it. We'll get Duke University in here. We'll." pilot it. We'll measure heart rate variability, cortisol levels, these common indicators of stress Mm -hmm. at a biometric level. Mm -hmm. They roll it out. Now, unsurprisingly, you know, people like being able to take an hour out of the workday to, you know, close their eyes. Who wouldn't? (laughs) But then they looked at the measurements after the eight or 10 week course was up and look, all the biometric measurements said stress levels had come down. So they roll it out across the company now, thousands of people at Aetna have done either yoga or mm. meditation, mindfulness, and at the end of the first full year that they've rolled it out, Mark Bertolini is looking at the results with his CFO, and they notice something extraordinary. Healthcare costs on a per-employee basis have come down across the company, mm. and the only thing major that they did was introduce these more robust wellness programs. Right. And so, that might be like, oh, come on, really? You're telling me meditation saves money? But think about it. Mindfulness and meditation reduce stress levels. We know stress is a common cause of other illnesses, yeah. the weakened immune system, sick days. And so if your employees are taking less time off to take care of themselves, if they're going to the infirmary less, if they're more productive, more attentive, more engaged on their job, of course it's going to be ROI yeah. for the business. Of course, it's going to touch the bottom line. And a company is big as Aetna, it didn't take that long for it to start to happen.
1: Amazing. Two interlinked questions here. So in the book, you have a really wonderful chapter about the history of meditation in the West, how the swans came to the lake. And I'm assuming that's really obviously from it was Rick Fields' book on the topic. Exactly. And so I'm sure we could like spend hours talking about that because it's a big, long subject. But can you, again, give us the super abbreviated condensed version since I think it really helps people understand at least part of the historic arc which has led to the current explosion of interest in meditation. So that that's part one. And then part two, I want to ask you closely related how has interest in meditation become fashionable in the scientific community? Because it, in the book, you talk about the recent advances in influence of fMRI uh, research as a huge factor in meditation and mindfulness finding purchase in the scientific community, especially among neuroscientists and contemplative neuroscientists. But I wanted to ask, kind of as this, this general arc, can you give us a little bit of that historical arc, too, together? Kind of, t- you know, how did we get here?
0: Yeah, uh, well, I'll do my best. And the chapter on the history was was really impressionistic. Mm. Um, inevitably, I'm going to be missing yeah. some important figures. It's but what world. I tried to do was trace, you know, where have touchstone American figures interacted with these ideas over mm. the last couple hundred years? Mm. And what laid the groundwork for this more mainstream embrace today? And it it wasn't surprising to me, honestly, that among the first famous American thinkers and writers to engage with these ideas were the Transcendentalists. Mm. Thoreau, Emerson, these guys were acquiring original texts, Buddhist, Vedic texts. They were having them translated. And then they were not only publishing them in some of their early magazines in the 19th century— But at times, they were actually trying to practice Mm. what was being described in them. And so if you look at Walden, it's actually this amazing treatise on mindfulness. Mm. Thoreau escapes into nature to sit by himself in silence and to simply observe nature as it unfolds before him. It's really, um, you know, one of the great first descriptions of mindfulness being practiced in the United States. Now, of course he he didn't use that word. The word wasn't popular back then. But if you read the text, I don't have it in front of me right here, but it's right there. It jumps off the page. And indeed, even though he didn't use the word mindfulness, when he passed away, some of his friends described him as a a yogi, as a Mm. mystic, Mm. as someone who had really tapped into something profound um and rick fields who you mentioned who wrote an excellent history of buddhism in america um called him i think the uh, america's first proto buddhist so he wasn't mm. he, he didn't quite identify as a buddhist but he was starting to embody some of these ideals yeah fast forward Mindfulness and Buddhism kind of don't uh, have such a role as, uh, you know, the 49ers expand across into California as the first industrial revolution starts churning through the 20th century. But but sure enough, in time, it reemerges after the world wars and the beats start engaging with Mm. this content. Kerouac, Ginsburg, Snyder. These guys are deeply enthralled with the Zen traditions. And so they start, again, reading, translating, publishing, and also practicing. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, these guys now have enough cultural influence and cachet that other people follow their lead. And now we have the beat zen movement in the 50s. That, of course, um, paves the way for the hippies. And the hippies, you know, it's easy to laugh them off. But in addition to like their tie-dye and psychedelics, some of them were going on on quite profound spiritual journeys of their own. And this is when we see Americans really for the first time in numbers starting to travel to India Mm. uh, and other Asian countries to, to learn directly from the existing living teachers. And that's also when it starts to go the other way, when teachers like Meningerji start coming to the United States in the 1970s and start teaching Americans directly. At the same time, listen, yoga is getting more popular. And by the 80s, yoga, meditation, there's like a legitimate, um, if still fringe, subculture across the United States. And that really paved the way for what we've seen over the last couple decades, which is this, you know, increasing snowballing. Proliferation of mindfulness, meditation, and yoga. Yeah. Now, as for the scientific embrace, um, I I'm probably will be even more uh, uninclusive. But a couple key points to note are there's this group called the Mind and Life Institute, mm-hmm. which was a group of neuroscientists. They very early on connected with the Dalai Lama and started going to Dharamsala, the seat of Tibetan government in exile in the Himalayas, and actually just starting to give fMRI and EEG tests to the brains of monks to see what was going on in their heads. Mm. And they were among the first to really say, listen, something's going on inside the physical brain when you meditate this much. We want to understand what it is. So Mind and Life, which has run this series of symposiums and done lots of wonderful publications, they were certainly at the front of it. They now have a summer institute, though brings together a lot of the leading contemplative neuroscientists. But at the same time, folks like John Kabat-Zinn, who popularized mindfulness-based stress reduction, and Richie Davidson, who's out at University of Wisconsin right now, these guys were deciding that they were going to make their careers about studying the minds of meditators. Um, and Richie in particular has just relentlessly um, you know, published article after article in mm. journal after journal studying the effects of meditation on the body and the brain. And thanks to his work and now so many others, I mean, I can't even name them all, but folks like uh, Amishi Jha and Judd Brewer and Dave Vago, these uh, studies are suddenly, you know, totally legitimate. Um, and, And their work is just being gobbled up by not only other neuroscientists, but by... The public who wants to understand when we do these practices what's actually going on in our heads well now we can start to understand
1: it's amazing i don't know if i got these statistics from your book but it was something on the studies on mindfulness funded by nih jumped from two in the year 2000 to 128 in, tw- in 2010 and they spent less than two million dollars on research into meditation in two thousand two. By twenty twelve, that number had jumped to fourteen million dollars.
0: Yeah, and I suspect those numbers are, are, you know, embarrassingly out of date at this point. Yeah.
1: Well, right. <laughs> if they were from your book, I don't know where I grabbed them, so I'm not. Uh, I can't hold you accountable. Um, no, only to yeah. say
0: that since two thousand ten, I, I think that I, I think both of those numbers have probably gone in in totally. exactly one direction. Yes. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. All right. So some people would argue, could argue there's really an implicit contradiction in the very terms, mindful work. Can, can you speak to some of the nuances and tensions around using a a revered and ancient contemplative practice for personal advancement and in capitalist institutions devoted to the bottom line? Can you, can you just maybe just touch on some of the points around that discussion. Cause obviously it's a big one and you can't handle it all here, but. Yeah. Uh, sure,
0: sure. I mean, the first thing I'd say is that I didn't necessarily write this book, hoping that people would use it for personal advancement. Um, I think that uh, is not the right intention to have mm-hmm. when you engage in mindfulness practice. I think more, more common aspirations that people bring to the table when they, you know, do a, a mindfulness practice or start learning about mindfulness and meditation are things like, I'd like to be less stressed. I'd like to be more accepting, more kind to myself, maybe be less of an asshole Mm. to to use common parlance. Um, Can I kind of ratchet down the intensity? Not to say I'm not going to work very hard, but can I work in a more useful manner while still being productive? So personal advancement probably isn't a term I'm comfortable with, but, but I take your point. As for, you know, uh, how to be mindful in a capitalistic society, listen, to, to, to go back to the Buddhist texts, not that I am a Buddhist and not that I am espousing Buddhism, but to kind of go to the most traditional source of these teachings in some way, uh, the Buddha talks about right livelihood. The Buddha didn't tell everyone to become a monk and stop working. Uh, some of his most accomplished disciples were merchants, were people who engaged every day mm. in a capitalist system. So I, I think it's a bit of a misnomer to suggest that these practices have no place in the working world. Yeah, Indeed, there's a long tradition of lay people, the laity, many of whom by definition have to work also trying to bring some of these experiences some of these practices into the entirety of their lives mm. from home to more personal contemplative moments and indeed also into the workplace
1: that's great so we've heard from a few kind of quote unquote closet meditators at about meditation so people who are embarrassed basically about admitting kind of in the workplace context that they that they are meditators. And I think they've written to us because there's an impulse that they they kind of want to quote unquote come out of the closet as it were. So what would you have what what would you say to them?
0: I'm not suggesting that everyone practice meditation in the office or that every office offer a meditation program. Mm. The the fact remains that while mindfulness has become more popular, There are still going to be some organizations, some institutions, some companies where it's culturally not the right fit. And I think it's important to respect those boundaries. So if that's the reason someone's practicing more privately, I think that's totally a respectful decision. But I would say, listen, if your office already offers a mindfulness and meditation class and you're like embarrassed to go in there because you're worried about what the person in the next cubicle might think, get over it. You know, if it's offered at the work, it's offered at the work. Um, But but uh, listen, I'm not sitting here telling everyone to to wave their meditation flag in the air. It's a personal decision. It's a personal practice. It can bring up a lot of intense stuff and people are going to find their own way uh, at their own time
1: so another big question we get is related to making meditation a habit how can i make meditation part of my daily routine do you have any tips for folks who are struggling to make meditation and mindfulness part of their daily routine
0: yeah, I have uh, an infant and a toddler at home, so I am not the best person to <laughs> talk to about a daily meditation practice That's these great. days. I describe myself as a sporadic meditator. Yeah, uh, I, I grab time when I can, and I feel really fortunate that I have more than a decade of practice under mm. my belt that really supports me. Yeah. Um, but there, listen, it's no excuse, and there's nothing like a daily practice. Uh, there's nothing like more intensive periods of retreat. That said, listen, the way to form habits, uh, there's lots of literature out there right now, the power of habit, but my friend Charles Duhigg here at The Times, it, the same is true no matter what the habit is you're trying to form. You got to do it regularly. You actually just have to do it. Doing it at the same time every day helps. For meditation, that's often means first thing in the morning, if you can. If a baby isn't waking you up, screaming. <laughs> um, and uh, don't expect... For the world to change before your eyes, there's a reason they call it practice. You know, just like going to the gym doesn't give you abs overnight, practicing meditation for a few times isn't going to make your mind instantly quiet. And the goal isn't to quiet the mind necessarily, the goal is to be more aware of what's happening in our minds so we can have a gentler response a more easeful interaction Mm. with whatever that is to not take it so seriously, if you will, not let it define the entirety of who we are. Um, so listen, make the time if you can find it, make it into part of your routine and don't expect a miracle results. This is no panacea.
1: That's great. Thank you. And I, I definitely recommend the power of habit. I've read that book. It's fantastic. It's been a little bit, more than a year since you published mindful work, it, it, certainly these trends you've identified in the book are only picking up steam. I recently read this short piece you wrote called "The Hidden Price of Mindfulness." Inc. Two questions for you, and then and then we're gonna wrap it up. How has your thinking evolved generally on the topic since the book was published? You must be tracking different emergent threads related to mindful work, and and. Number two, where do you see all this headed?
0: Yeah, the the piece that I just wrote um, sums up both of those questions yeah. in a way. What I've seen over the last couple of years since I finished writing the book and then since the book came out is that uh, there is boundless appetite for mindfulness mm. and meditation in the marketplace. And that means that there's no end to the offerings. I mean, literally, hardly a day goes by when I don't get a pitch from some new meditation company wanting me to check out their new app or their new interactive head, headband. Yeah. Um, and so, like I say in the piece, there's probably a lot of good coming of that, you know, bringing these practices to a larger audience, I think, is by definition probably a, a pretty good thing. But there's also a lot of risks. Uh as mindfulness becomes commercialized, just like what happened in yoga, I think it's going to be inevitably harder and harder to essentially have quality control, mm. to know which teachings and teachers are really authentic yeah. and have had uh, robust training and experience that gives them the authority to you know, guide people into this very intense territory. Yeah. And who's kind of coming to this and taking an online meditation course for a few days and then deciding that they can teach it too? There's a big difference. And uh, I think it's going to be harder and harder to discern between all these various offerings. Uh, and uh, there's in, inevitable risks when we see that kind of thing happening. As for where it's headed, though, listen. Um, I'm largely optimistic. I think there's a lot of good offerings out Mm -hmm. there. I think they're reaching a lot of people. Um, But again, I just can't stress enough how important it is for, I think, us as a community to find ways to um, police the quality, to really make sure that those people who are offering teachings are doing it for the right reasons and are doing it with good intentions in mind and really have the experience to give them the uh, fundamental understanding of what this practice is all about that would allow them to transmit it in a way that is respectful, that is careful, and that really preserves the integrity of these traditions. Hmm.
1: David, thank you. If people want to buy the book and if they want to learn more about your work, connect with you and, and read your articles, where where can they go the, and what, what else would you like to share with everyone?
0: Sure. My book is Mindful Work, How Meditation is Changing Business from the Inside Out. The paperback was just released and you can get it online at Amazon and wherever you buy books. My website is davidgellis.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-G-E-L-L-E-S dot com. And I've got all sorts of information there. If you need to get in touch with me, my emails are right there on the site.
1: Wonderful. David, thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having me, Morgan.
1: Great. I hope you enjoyed my interview with David Gellis. If you'd like to connect with David or buy his book, I've included links in the show notes over at aboutmeditation.com forward slash podcast. That's aboutmeditation.com forward slash podcast. And while you're over there, If you haven't already, don't forget to pick up some of our free guided meditations and our three-part meditation seminar. It's called Meditation for Life. It's a great free resource to support your practice. And if you enjoyed the show today, if you're a regular fan, I'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review over on iTunes. It's really the best way to help other meditators discover our show. That's over at aboutmeditation.com forward slash iTunes. So check that out. And then finally, let's end with a quote. And this one is from Joseph Goldstein, speaking about his teacher, Munindraji, whom David referenced a few times in the interview today. That's the teacher he met when he was in Bodh Gaya in India. This is the quote from Joseph Goldstein. One of the first things that Manindra said to me when we met in Bodh Gaya, 1967 was that if I wanted to understand the mind, I should sit down and observe it. The great simplicity and pragmatism of this advice struck a very resonant chord within me. There was no dogma to believe, no rituals to observe, rather there was the understanding that liberating wisdom can grow from one's own systematic and sustained investigation.